trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. It's, uh, hey, it's time for our weekly visit with Eric Peters from epautos.com. Greetings, Eric. Greetings, Brian. I'm glad that I was able to spend a week driving around in the Charger Hellcat Red Eye. Uh, it was the necessary medicine for the disease that afflicts us. Well, we're we're going to find some time to talk about that in, in today's uh, okay. broadcast because I want to hear everything about it. Even if you have to make up some details, I want to hear about it. Oh, it's not necessary. The, There's okay. no need for editorial hyperbole <laughs> when you're talking about a car like that. It writes itself. Okay. So, like dessert, we're going to save that for the second segment here. But, um, Eric... I'm looking around me, and I'm getting a weird hitch in my stomach over mm-hmm. what appears to be uh, a slow but steady slide back into that lockdown mentality. What are you seeing? Well, the same thing, and it didn't take a profit to predict it, did it? We knew this was coming. Um, as they begin to lose control of their narrative, uh, as uh, not enough people have lined up to receive their holy anointing, the diapering is about to make a comeback. And uh, we're seeing some truly alarming, rabidized, uh, hysterical uh, outpourings coming from the mouths of people like the governor of Alabama and the mayor of New York and also the governor of New York, who are inverting everything and claiming that all of us who have chosen not to buy into the sickness kabuki and who have remained healthy um, are to blame for everything. That's my best meemaw. That's what they call her, apparently, down in Alabama (laughs) impersonation. That was really disturbing to, to see, number one, how angry she got at a reporter who asked yeah. her, you know, well, uh, what do you intend to do? What can we do to get more people to get this vaccination? And she just snapped at, why don't you tell me? And then it was right into the blame game. I mean, it's, I, I, I hate to draw well, any parallels. The, with, with She actually had the effrontery to accuse people who have not received the anointing of lacking common sense. And, and that just took my breath away. Wait a minute. So you're telling me, that I lack common sense because I am hesitant or unwilling to become a guinea pig for an experimental vaccine that has killed thousands of people, that has had tens of thousands of horrific side effects and the long-term effects of which we don't know. And meanwhile, I'm perfectly healthy. I know that my risk profile from this putative sickness is essentially nil because I'm not obese, I'm not elderly, I don't have any problems underlying anything, so therefore... Uh, I, I don't feel that there's any rational reason for me to be injected with a literally experimental medicine. And somehow that is not common sense. Explain that to me if you can. Right. Well, the, the idea is that if anybody questions or if anybody doubts, well, they're just anti-vaccine, anti-social, mm-hmm. anti-government. But we're not, we're not behaving like conspiracy theorists. Questioning is... And should be something that everybody is well-practiced in. The fact that it's becoming taboo ought to be kind of a red flag for people who value their personal autonomy. Oh, absolutely. You know, people, I think, are not nearly as stupid as they're trying to portray them as being. I wouldn't get into a car that had questionable brakes that might not stop. I would would characterize that as being commonsensical and reasonable. And for the same reason, I'm not going to be injected with something that is produced by these pharmaceutical cartels 
that have uh, immunized themselves from liability, that have a massive profit motive, and that I don't need. That's the bottom line. What is wrong with this concept? I am not sick. I'm not taking a medicine for something I don't have and that isn't a threat to me. It makes no sense to me, and I'm tired of being characterized as a bad person for that reason. Well, and, and look, maybe, look, I'll admit to maybe being just a little bit paranoid, but I get that way when I see the intensity with which uh, yeah. government and some of its acolytes are, are you know, stepping up and insisting you have to do this. I know you likened them to, uh, you know, timeshare salesmen or car, yeah. used car salesmen. Yeah, most of us would immediately walk out the door when, when we were confronted with that kind of pressure from a timeshare salesman or a car salesman. You know there's something wrong with this picture when they're pushing you that hard. Most people instinctively know, eh, this guy, he's up to something. This isn't right. Uh, I don't feel good about this. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Uh, and that's just a car or a timeshare. You know, you might get um, screwed out of some money. This is something that could potentially screw you out of your life and will screw you out of your liberty because, I, as I constantly mention to people, it's not just a one-shot deal. If this is allowed to cement and become precedent and normalized, it will never end. They will constantly be demanding that we submit to whatever medical procedures they, in their great wisdom, deem we must have, all of which will be paid for us. Right now, they're saying, oh, the shot is free. It's at no cost to you. But billions are being made by these pharmaceutical cartels, and somebody's paying for that, and we're paying for it in the form of taxes, and we'll pay for it in the form of increased health care costs, and we may pay for it in terms of compromised health going down the road, and God knows what else will happen because nobody knows, and nobody's talking about that. Nobody knows. Nobody can say with any kind of confidence or assurance that if you get this shot six months from now, a year from now, you're not going to develop some kind of really debilitating, horrible side effect. And meanwhile, another important point, even if you get the Rona, there are effective treatments for it. Right. So the, so the risk is less to not take the vaccine. And, you know, if you get sick and if you get seriously sick, you get treated for it, no problem, as opposed to assuming the risk of this, whatever this is that's in these needles, that could potentially be catastrophically bad for you. I have seen uh, what I thought was a pretty on-target meme that said, look, I can always take off my tinfoil hat. Can you remove your protein spikes? There you go. Exactly. And I think, too, that's part of the reason for some of the pushback on this needling. As loathsome and as degrading as the wearing of the face diapers was, you can take the diaper off. And, uh, you know, so people were willing to do that uh, because they didn't want to be uh, involved in a confrontation. They wanted to be able to go grocery shopping. They wanted to keep their jobs. But this is a real kick up. This is an order of magnitude increase in uh, what's being demanded of people. They're talking about uh, compromising their health, something permanent. Once this gets injected into your body, you can't get it out. And whatever is done to you, again, it bears repeating, they're not responsible for it. Think about that. Imagine that. Imagine being told you must buy a car that comes with no warranty, that has a drivetrain that's got no track record for liability or for reliability. And if the thing wrecks and kills you or maims you or your family, well, you're, you're out of luck. Too bad. You can't sue the manufacturer. Who would, who would get into a car like that? No, this, it's a very good point. And, and yet, the pressure is being brought to bear in so many different sectors. I mean, there are employers who are requiring, if you want to work, you're going to have to get the shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to send your kids to school, not only do they need to get the shot, but they need to mask up. I mean, the, the yep. pressure is coming from all angles now. Sure. Well, the pressure is coming, I think, for a number of reasons. They're losing control of the narrative, and they have to keep this thing going in order for it to not fall apart. Uh, and the underlying motive, at least one of them, there are probably other motives, but the underlying motive is the profit motive. These cartels, these pharmaceutical cartels that, not, that own the media for all practical purposes 
and own the corporations, again, for all practical purposes because they're that rich, uh, want, to, want to make it government policy, corporate policy, that everybody's going to be compelled to take their, prop, their, their medicines and thereby increase their profits. That's, that's one of the core things that's behind this. When I began my career as a journalist, we were taught, we were told, look, the first thing you do is, is ask what the motive of whatever the person or entity is behind it. If there's a profit motive, be suspicious because they're interested in it and it makes you question what they're up to. And the media today is completely derelict in asking that question. And it's, it's curious, too, that we don't hear any talk about natural immunity. I mean, was, right. that, was that somehow bred out of the human race while we weren't looking? Right, exactly, apparently. And again, you know, circling back, we, we, you know, we're, we're in this fact-free era, but it bears repeating the fact that for most people who don't fall into these, these risk categories, meaning the, the, the elderly people who are over 70, people who are obese and elderly, and people who are already sick, and obese, who have all of these other problems and who are vulnerable to everything, not just the Rona. The rest of us, 99.8% recovery rate. If you get it, that's if you get it. So you know, if you factor that into it, it's, it's this panic, this mass hysteria over something that doesn't kill 99.8 something percent of the population is the textbook definition of a mass hysteria, a mass panic that's been fomented by, in my opinion, criminal people like Fauci. Wow. Well, we all have some decisions to make, and, you know, it, it, it's not the kind of thing you can put off until there's someone standing at your doorstep with a needle in their hand yeah. saying, oh, by the way, we, right. we don't notice that, that you're vaccinated. Well, Right. I think it's important for people to be proactive, and uh, the first step in being proactive is thinking about what you may have to do if it comes to pass that you're presented with the Hobson's Choice of submitting to this needling or keeping your job. What will you do? It's best not to be blindsided by that. It's best not to wait until that choice confronts you. I think it's a very good idea to start contemplating lateral moves. I think it's a good idea to start talking to people that you work with and finding people who are of like mind so that you can band together and say, no, we won't do this, and in effect go on strike and apply that pressure to your company so as to make it that they can't do this to you. Amen. We're we're up against the break here, Eric. When we come back, let's touch on this again briefly, especially the part about strength in numbers mm-hmm. and finding yep. like-minded people. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. I've got a link to his uh, website in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, as we went to break, you were mentioning uh, something about the importance of, of uh, connecting with people around you who are like-minded. Because right yep. now, for, for all the world, it feels like we're being isolated and, you know, slowly, uh, you know, separated from the herd and then squelched. Uh, where do we find mm-hmm. like-minded souls? Well, uh, by talking to them. If you're talking about people that, you're, that are in your orbit, your neighbors, your people, the people that you work with, the people that you do business with, just chat them up. It's pretty easy to, to determine whether somebody uh, is sympathetic and like-minded and um, make a point of becoming more friendly with those people, particularly your neighbors who may come in very handy 
in the uh, weeks and months and years ahead. You never know how ugly this could get. And it's much easier for these Cretans uh, to pick us off one by one, um, not just physically, but also psychologically, to make us feel alone. That was part of what that lockdown business was all about, by the way, and the diapering. It was to isolate us and to make us each individually feel afraid and alone, uh, and as, as if everybody else was crazy and we dare not raise our voice and we dare not touch anybody, we dare not look at anybody else in the eye. And that's got to stop. And the next thing that's got to happen is that people who are sane and humane and reasonable and rational have got to reinforce each other physically as well as psychologically, get together with people who aren't crazy and who are reasonable, socialize with them, and talk with them about what you may do in the event that things do get ugly and and Joe Biden or whoever starts sending out needle squads to people's houses. It's a horrible thing to have to contemplate it, but I think we're foolish if we don't take it into account and consider it. No, absolutely. We're we're seeing a kind of medical version of Jim Crow rolled out where where segregation's Mm -hmm. back in fashion. I kind of like the suggestion that a writer named C.J. Hopkins had. I don't know if you saw his article on Lou Rockwell the other day, but... I did. The the armband with the inverted red triangle and a big U for unvaccinated brilliant right you use the same tactics and what you just said earlier that term segregation that's exactly it um uh, reverse saul olinsky's rules for radicals and turn it around on them you know they want to turn people into pariahs let's be straight up about it and talk about that let's 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 make them uncomfortable let's make them realize exactly what they are doing how they're ghettoizing people marginalizing people setting people out uh as as an untouchable cast people who can be abused with impunity mocked and all of these other things, which inevitably lead to a very dark place. You know, if you make it acceptable for a society to marginalize any group of people and to look down on them as dangerous, as disgusting, as despicable people, what ends up happening? You're giving license, official license to mistreating people and ultimately potentially even to murdering people. And that, that is something that we have got to stand forthrightly against. Here, here. Well, I'm I'm looking into where to to get an armband made up. My sewing skills are not great, but I actually think that's that's a tactic I would be willing to adopt, mm-hmm. and and I'll proudly wear it in public. Nope, I won't put on a mask, but I'll put on my armband so people know that I'm one of the unvaccinated. Yeah, or just put on uh, a star. You know, they they the Nazis and in medieval Europe they made the Jews wear the yellow star, uh, the inverted triangle, the triangle with the you know to identify and single them out for abuse. Well. We can do the same thing. We can make a little star and put uh, a little needle on it and and say unclean or unvaccinated or something. And mocking, you know, we've talked about this before, you and I. It's very important to mock this. Um, You know, tyranny cannot stand up to to ridicule. Uh, We must not let them assume the mantle of respectability because they're not. They're shady, slimy, awful, miserable, wretched, cretinous little people. And they need to be called out for that. All right. I, I I feel encouraged. You know, every time I talk with you, I'm, I'm like, okay, Eric's still, he's got the fire in his belly and, and you're still speaking the language of liberty. Let's talk for a moment about mm-hmm. the 2021 Dodge Charger Hellcat Red Eye. Well, it, it answers the question of when is 700 and, what's wrong with 707 horsepower? And the answer to that question is nothing that 797 horsepower can't cure. They 
I love Dodge. They doubled down on it. So it wasn't enough to have a supercharged 707-horsepower uh, sedan or, or coupe that can go through the quarter mile in 11 seconds. Uh, we need a nearly 800-horsepower car that can do the quarter mile in 10 seconds and has a top speed of 203 miles an hour. And, oh, my God, I had the best week of the last 20 years of my life driving that car around. So why is this called the Red Eye? I mean, I've heard I, I see Hellcats around occasionally. I'm always, ooh, look at that. But yep. what's the Red Eye variant? Well, the Red Eye variant is the one that has another 100 horsepower almost. Okay. Versus the regular Hellcat. The regular Hellcat only has 707 horsepower. This one has been wicked up, so it's considerably more powerful, considerably hairier. Um, keep in mind that this is a rear-wheel drive car. Uh, the handful of cars that have that kind of power on the market are generally all-wheel drive, uh, which is much more controllable. This thing, it took me a couple of days to get a feel for it. You know, if you start to get into the gas a bit too deep, even at 30 or 40 miles an hour, the tires will smoke. And, you know, it will slide and spin all over the road. It's the best, best drive you'll ever have. I think uh, I'm trying to remember back in the day, you and I had talked here a few years ago when when the Hellcat version first came out. And I think Mm -hmm. you were saying that at at the time they were offering a driving course when you purchased Mm -hmm. one of those vehicles. Do do they still Mm -hmm. do that? You know, I don't know. But I think the the assumption is that anybody who's going to buy one of these things uh, probably is familiar with the deal and smart enough. Um, to not get in trouble in the thing. But I'm just grateful for the fact that they continue to offer a car like that, though God knows for how much longer they'll be able to do it, given all of the political pressure to stop making cars like that. Yeah. Well, it's uh, maybe that's why it appeals to me so much. It's like... uh... It, it just it touches something primal to, to see. It is a good-looking car, too. I mean, it's not just, oh, yeah, we put a huge engine in a brick. I mean, they, they right. put some thought into this thing. Yeah, and well, not only that, you know, you and I can remember when we were in high school, uh, powerful cars that weren't nearly as powerful as this car um, were marginal to drive on the street. They had those camshafts, and they'd go, you know, and they, they would barely, barely hold an idle, and they didn't have air conditioning, they didn't run well in traffic. You know, if you had to keep them going or the plugs would foul or they would stall out or something. This thing, if you're not really hammering it, uh, is as easy to drive as a Camry. It's just a Camry that will go 200 and something miles an hour. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I, just, I just was thinking for a moment, got, there's got to be some people losing their minds. This is the assault weapon of cars. <laughs> That's exactly why I love it so much. You know, it, it's the car that, that will leave Greta Thunberg uh, in, in paroxysms of agony, <laughs> spittle spewing on the ground. Al Gore stroking out, clutching his chest, Fred Sanford style, going, I'm coming to join you, Elizabeth. I'm coming to join you. So, so how much does, does a little dream car like this set a person back? Well, it's 79000 bucks. But put that into context. There is nothing, not a thing, on the market for that amount of money that will give you that kind of performance. This is a thing that will, uh, will hang with cars that cost $200,000 and more. Yeah, it's expensive. But given the fact that a loaded Tahoe or even a loaded minivan, for that matter, these days can easily cost 50000 bucks and more, it's not that far of a stretch to get one of these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, 80000 bucks. Now you're talking a pretty nice pickup truck. Right, exactly. Well, you know, as, as long as gas prices are still, uh, you know, paltry just under $4, I say, why not? Well, and, you know, speaking of that, this thing, believe it or not, can get about 20 miles per gallon on the highway. Again, provided you don't dig too deep into it. And that's pretty impressive. It's really not that much worse than what you'd get if you were driving around in a half-ton pickup truck 
or, or minivan for that matter. Minivans generally get about 26, 27 miles per gallon. This thing will get about 21 miles per gallon on the highway. And look really good doing it. And look really good, and it's a sedan. It's a big American sedan. So you can explain it away to your wife as a practical vehicle, <laughs> which it kind of is because it's got a back seat, a real back seat. You can put five people in this thing, and it's got a nice big trunk, so plenty of room. It's something that you could drive 800 miles to Disneyland if you wanted to. You know, most of the time, cars like this, performance cars, tend to be aggressive little coupes, and if they have a back seat, it's completely vestigial, and they have a ridiculous trunk. So they're totally impractical. So you bring one of those home to your wife, and she's probably not going to be super happy about it. Okay, just making a note here. Honey, Eric says it's a family car. Okay, got it. <laughs> Eric Peters from epautos.com. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Absolutely, Brian. Always have a good time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so glad that uh, you found me. Hopefully, you're finding something useful, something worthwhile. Something that enriches, enlightens, or otherwise inspires you to keep moving forward and hopefully onward and upward. I want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors, including Patriot Home Mortgage. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George. If you are fortunate enough to be one of the lucky people who is relocating to the Intermountain West, and in particularly if you're moving to Utah, and even more particularly moving to Southern Utah, Heather Turner is the one you need to talk to. From uh, VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability, the experience, and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. And getting it done without delay is the name of the game because it's a super competitive real estate market. Heather's NMLS ID number 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and they're located in St. George, at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2, or you can call 435-703-4522. I heard about this incident a couple of weeks ago, and I heard about it from a friend of mine who is in law enforcement. And it was a a deputy sheriff in a, a tiny little county in southern Utah had pulled someone over for speeding, and apparently the girl that he pulled over, uh, one of her friends, <clears throat> felt that he was being aggressive. And she was making it very clear. She, she did not approve of the, the traffic stop. She didn't approve of the ticketing. And so what she did was she took out a sign that they had picked up, which had said, back the blue. I don't know where she got it. She could have got it out of the trash or something. But she picked up this back the blue sign, threw it on the ground, stomped on it in front of him, and then crumpled it up and threw it in the trash. He then arrested her for disorderly conduct and... I can't remember what the other, uh, there, there was one other thing that, uh, that I believe he, uh, he arrested her for. Um, crazy. She's been charged with a hate crime because she showed contempt for a sheriff's deputy who had stopped her friend. Now, I, I know Utah was one of the, the last stubborn holdouts, you know, in avoiding enacting a so-called hate crimes law. And maybe it was for good reason. 
Because stuff like this is what, uh, this is the kind of abuse, this is the kind of thought policing that uh, that really makes them, the, it makes these laws such a dangerous thing to, to play around with. Lauren Gibson, she's 19 years old. I'm looking at an article here from Connor Friedersdorf, who uh, writes for theatlantic.com. And he's specifically writing about how this back-the-blue arrest is showing the folly of hate crimes versus free speech. Because it was only passed, I think, back in 2019. And this this young lady is 19 years old. Now she faces possible jail time for a law. And it's, this was passed with bipartisan support. So, you know, I know there are plenty of Republicans in Utah. Well, we're doing what we can to stop hate in the world. You don't stop it with legislation. Because what people are thinking is uh, it's not something you can prove. You can't get into their brains. The only thing you can do is measure their actions and measuring their actions in terms of have they actually harmed another person or that person's property. So let's break this down a little bit here. Connor uh, Friedersdorf says, you know, this law allows prosecutors to seek harsher punishments for criminal offenses targeting people for any of more than a dozen reasons. And we're talking things like the victim's race, religion, gender identity, or, faithfully, status as a police officer. A law previously portrayed as a historic stand against intolerance instead being, is instead being used to punish speech that people who work for the state don't like. He says proponents of hate crime legislation tend to assume they'll stigmatize or deter attacks on marginalized and vulnerable groups, but... Not all authorities with the power to enforce those laws share that vision, particularly a certain Garfield County deputy. The Utah case, he says, is a stark reminder that laws intended to impede discrimination can be risky. They can enable government agents to subvert core liberties or civil liberties protections by punishing or chilling speech that its armed enforcers dislike. So again, Lauren Gibson, she was part of a three-vehicle caravan. Along the way, one of the drivers was pulled over for speeding by a Garfield County deputy. Now, Gibson told the Daily Beast that the cop's attitude toward her friend was a little too aggressive. So wanting to stand up for her friend, she retrieved a pro-police sign that said, Back the Blue, stomped on it as the deputy watched and then threw it in the trash. Now, she claims her group found the sign on the side of the road and kept it. The deputy alleged, well, she stole the sign from a local display. Listen to the words of Sheriff James Perkins in a statement that went on to argue how his deputy was the victim for what this young woman did. Quote, Ms. Gibson caused a public disturbance and purposely targeted the officer in a very unpeaceful manner. He was singled out and attacked because he was a law enforcement officer. We are greatly disturbed by the hatred shown to law enforcement officers for no apparent reason. We are hopeful that this country can mend and heal from the division. Oh, Sheriff. Brother. (laughs) Wallowing in victimhood doesn't look good on anybody, but especially it doesn't look good on people who are looked to as stalwart, powerful, you know, fearless individuals there to protect society. I'd expect this from some mewling soy boy, you know, dressed in in rainbow colors and, and, uh, you know, dancing around, you know, trying to get attention the hard way. But really? How feeble does a cop have to be to feel intimidated by a teenager smirking or stomping on a sign? Does the county really need to heal from this incident? 
asks Connor Friedersdorf. So she was booked for criminal mischief and disorderly conduct. The arresting document stated she was smirking in an intimidating manner and due to the demeanor displayed by Gibson in attempts to intimidate law enforcement, those charges are subject to a sentencing enhancement. So if she's convicted, she'll be subjected to a harsher punishment. Now look, unless the sign was stolen, and they have no proof that it was, she could have found it in the trash, she could have found it laying alongside the road, someone could have given it to her. No crime was committed at all. What she did, I'll, I'll admit, that was not a kind, neighborly thing to do. She was angry. She's 19 years old. Gee, I don't know. You know, at 19 years old, I probably did some rash things as well. What really blew me away was that my friend who pointed this out to me, and he is a veteran law enforcement officer, he said, I can't believe how thin-skinned this officer was. He says, in an instant like that, and, and, and keep in mind, my friend is kind of an aberration because he is probably one of the best examples of a peace officer that I know of. I wish every police officer out there was more like him. He said his first reaction was, hey, when somebody does something like that, they're obviously doing it to try to get a rise out of you. Sometimes, in that case, the best thing you can do is just smile and wave. Let it roll off your back. It didn't harm you. It didn't threaten you. But he actually takes, some, he, sometimes he'll take this a little bit further, and he will actually approach the person and say, can I buy you lunch? And I mean, he will legitimately buy them lunch or, and sit down with them and talk with them and just try to find out what, uh, what happened. What did you experience that, that gives you such a negative impression of police officers in general? And that's not a hollow kind of offer. I mean, he's, he is legitimately the kind of guy. I'll give you an example. He was driving down the, the road in his patrol car and saw a young African-American man walking along. Now, this is a very rural part of Utah. And so I'm just going to point out that's, that's a little bit out of the norm. And, and it was hot as all get out that day. So he sees this young man walking along in the heat, and he just pulled over and asked the guy, Hey, everything okay? Do you need a lift anywhere? And and this young man obviously had had some real defense shields up. He's like, nope, don't want to talk to you. Nope, I don't consent to any conversation. I'm just going to move on. You know, leave me alone. And my friend's like, okay, he, maybe this kid had some experience with the cops that, you know, he, he was worried he was going to get hassled or something. So what did my friend do? Well, he grabbed him an ice-cold Gatorade, went back. Actually, he drove to the store, grabbed a Gatorade, went back, and then handed it to the young man who drank it on the spot and just said, hey, it's just really hot out here. I just, you know, I worry that, that maybe you're going to be feeling the effects of the heat. See, that's what being a peace officer is about. It was clear this guy didn't want to talk to him. It was clear the guy felt, you know, oh, no, no, you know, we don't, we don't want to go there. But that didn't become a pretext for, well, he's obviously hiding something and we're going to have to shake him down. So I, I'm going to have in the show notes a link to this article from Connor Friedersdorf this back-the-blue arrest, yeah, she did something that a lot of people would have considered disrespectful. My response is, so what? Who is the victim? And if you try to tell me that this, this sheriff's deputy was a victim because it hurt him right in the feels, I'm going to invite you to uh, man the heck up and realize that uh, this guy is supposed to be doing unpopular things. He's supposed to be forcing people from time to time whatever the dictates of the state or the county may be. 
people are going to feel some you know, antipathy towards him. But charge him with a hate crime? Charging this girl with a hate crime? That's just ridiculous. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Every day as I am doing my show prep, and by the way, that's pretty much a day-long process because I am constantly scanning, looking for things that are of interest, things that will hopefully inform you more about what is happening in the world as well as, you know, what, uh, what can you do? And I like to focus on the principles rather than just partisan concerns. I don't care so much for labels. They, they just don't do it for me. You know, people who want to, to embrace politics as, as kind of the, the driver of, of whatever dynamic, whatever change they're trying to affect in society, that's fine for them. That's not for me. And if you're fed up with politics and you're tired of being told this is what we got to do, we just got to politics even harder, well, hopefully you're finding a bit of refuge here. I like, for, for instance, I, I really appreciate what I have learned from, from my very rudimentary study of economics. And I realize not everybody has time or interest to study economics, but we would all be better off to understand some of the basic principles of economics. Because at its root, this is the study of why we make the decisions we do, how people choose to interact in their own self-interest. Isaac Morehouse just had a great essay published on everythingvoluntary.com. And it's on the division of labor and hidden knowledge. I want to share this with you, number one, because it's short but it also could just open your eyes to a few of the things we tend to take for granted. He says the creation of a a pencil in a free market economy is illegible and beyond the cataloging and understanding of any individual human or body of humans. He's talking about Leonard Reed's essay, I Pencil, which he says describes an unknowable act. He says it cannot be known. It can only be experienced. It cannot be planned. It can only be embodied. It cannot be predicted. It can only emerge. And the author, Leonard Reed, does not fully understand and or contain or define it, but tells a rough story of how it proceeds. In the Bible, Isaac Morehouse says, King David is tempted by Satan to take a census of all his people. He does and is punished by God for doing so. The earliest known writings appear to be ledgers for accounting. James C. Scott describes the the emergence of government monopolies on force in a geographical area as relying on legibility. Grain harvest had to occur on known schedules with knowable yields. Forests had to be managed in neat rows of countable trees. Government cannot create anything. They rely on what they can take through the threat of violence. To threaten and take requires definable, containable victims. So there are all kinds of ancient stories about people or gods making known secret knowledge and suffering and chaos that resulted from it. What is it about making explicit the implicit or visible the veiled that is so dangerous? Why do devils and spirits tempt man with this idea? And why do rebels and freedom fighters resist being counted? On the surface, he says, it seems like a warning against technology, knowledge, or community and coordination. It seems to imply a hand-to-mouth existence based entirely on what hap- whatever happens to come is better than plans and efforts and technological progress. Defining things gives us the power to work with and improve them. And he asks, is this bad? 
Isaac Morehouse says, I don't think it's a condemnation of these things. I think it's a reminder that these things emerge and exist because we're fallible. Perfect knowledge and understanding of all future events is a kind of existence we can't comprehend. Because of unknowns, we have to guess and probabilistically solve, problem-solve, and tinker and experiment and exchange. Now, out of these tinkerings and exchanges emerges a series of interconnected relationships with bits of info embodied in things like language and prices. Viewing this as perfection and attempting to freeze it, know it, and count it is an attempt to build a Tower of Babel. And that's dangerous and deadly, what Hayek called the fatal conceit. The point of the division of labor and the ongoing process of market exchange and discovery is to surprise and be surprised through continued mutually beneficial action. So to capture a free market is to kill it. It's an ongoing dance of motion and attempts to coordinate off and capture some of its power is to stop the flow of creativity. Any power captured by stagnating this flow will corrupt. The division of labor and free exchange create a kind of ephemeral yet very real and living knowledge that aids and spurs to action and gives life. The controlled, directed, and defined economy siphons off vestiges of that creativity and causes atrophy and death. So the more legible the market would the more legible the market to would-be rulers, the closer it is to death. The embodied knowledge of free and open exchange is harmonious with humans' limitations and therefore maximizes our capacities. He says the capture of that process to own and define, contain and control it, exceeds human ability and therefore reduces and destroys our capacities. I pencil, he says, is about a kind of knowledge that can never be controlled by a guild, a life-giving kind. Census-taking and central planning and boards and permits and macroeconomic mandates are attempts at a kind of knowledge beyond the reach of man, and as such come with warnings and promises of death. By the way, if you haven't read I Pencil, you really should take a look at it. It's not that long of an essay, but you'll start to realize how many things we take for granted that come about because of voluntary cooperation between people who have never met each other, but nonetheless are working to provide for the needs of others. All right, one final note here. I love Kent McManigal's clear, principled take on liberty. And I especially loved the latest piece of his, Liberty is Illegal. He says, Liberty is illegal. It isn't piecemeal. Either you have the freedom to do everything you have a right to do, everything which doesn't violate anyone else's equal and identical rights, free from political interference, or you don't. There is no halfway. And the government doesn't allow you to exercise your liberty. No political government anywhere willingly allows it. Libraries are full of legislation written to violate your liberty. So, liberty is illegal. And this is why governments such as the USA encourage people to focus on freedom instead. It's why government supremacist organizations public freedom in, publish freedom indices instead of something more objective. Now, freedom is subjective because it depends on what you want to do. You may have the freedom to Netflix and chill, but not to carry a full-auto Tommy gun to the store. But if you don't care about the Tommy gun and you're happy about everything else, wee, I feel free. And you are free. Buddy says your liberty is being violated. Only by getting rid of legislation can liberty stop being illegal. And that probably requires getting rid of political government, which means liberty will be illegal all your life. 
Now, that's not the defeatism you might think, he says. He says, if you know you're going to have to be an outlaw all your life to get as close as possible to living in liberty, it removes a lot of the hesitation about breaking laws. That's in, that's in quotation marks. <laughs> your concern isn't whether something you have a right to do is illegal. Your concern is only about getting caught. And once you realize evildoers of one sort or another will always be trying to violate you, it's just what they do, even if liberty weren't illegal, well, then you can get on with living and dodging or outsmarting the bad guys, which is just life. So don't let the opinions of your enemies, of liberty's enemies, dictate how you live. Now, I understand for some people that's going to sound pretty radical. What the heck is he saying there? Don't care about breaking laws? Let me put this another way, because I, I think I, I understand what he's saying. He, he's not saying go out there and take whatever you want, victimize whoever you want. The whole point that he made is you cannot be violating someone else's rights. And that includes their property rights. Without being in the wrong. But what he's describing, I don't know, maybe I hope the light goes on for you like it did for me. If you want to live in a state of liberty, it's not going to come about because someone gave you permission to do so. It's going to come about because you recognized your liberty, you recognized your inalienable rights, you claimed them, used them, and defended them. And for some people, that's just uncomfortable. Why? Because, well, that might put me at odds with other people. I mean, somebody might look at me and you know think that I'm some kind of a radical or some kind of an outlaw. But that's kind of the point. If you want to be a person who lives in liberty, you've got to get used to the idea of being an outlaw of sorts. And I guess what I'm asking you to consider is this. Not every outlaw is the same. Not every outlaw is, you know, some meth dealing, you know, one percenter biker that's, you know, out there, you know, creating havoc. There are, there, there is such a thing as the right kind of outlaw. And to me, the right kind of outlaw probably looks a little bit more like a person who peacefully goes on with their life, does not stop and ask permission at every turn, does their best to honor their word, does their best to respect other people's rights, but absolutely does not let that uh, endless lust for desire and control by people in government and sometimes out of government to deter them from living in a state of liberty. Yeah, you're going to be out of step with a lot of uh, society. But there's a peculiar comfort that comes from being out of step with the people who are clanking along in their chains. Give it a try. You might just find that an outlaw's life is actually something agreeable. This is The Brian Hyde Show.